Welcome to Gestational Diabetes Club. I'm your host, Helena, dietitian, nutritionist, vegetable enthusiast, and big fan of strong coffee and dark chocolate. Join me here each week to chat about all things gestational diabetes. We'll cover everything you need to know about your nutrition, lifestyle, and all the messy bits in between so that you can feel empowered to optimize your blood sugar, grow a healthy baby, and create sustainable healthy habits to last a whole lifetime without the stress, overwhelm, guilt, or confusion. Thanks so much for joining me, and I hope you love it here. Hello, welcome back. Today is another beautiful birth story with one of my past clients, Elise, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this intro because I think we all know what we're in for here. I know we all love listening to birth stories, or I do at least, and it was just a pleasure being able to hear Elise's story because she has had kind of a rocky one. There's been ups, there's been downs. She's actually pregnant at the moment at the time of recording with her second gestational diabetes pregnancy, so I thought that it would actually be a really good time to record so that we could hear her first story where she had gestational diabetes and then listen to how she's going at the moment. And we obviously worked together for a period of time. Don't worry, it's not just an ad. I think that you will get so much out of hearing the contrast between her two pregnancies with JD and the differences in how she's managed the two, as well as some of the other challenges that she has faced along the way. Trigger warning, because there is a little mention of disordered eating and there is also a mention of miscarriage in this episode, so you don't have to listen if those things are not things that you want to hear about. But if you do listen, I think you're going to absolutely love this chat. Now, the other thing that you do need to know before you get into this episode is that I'm going away quite soon, which is very exciting for me. I'm going on a gorgeous trip over to Europe, and I'm not going to spend too much time talking about that because I don't want to make you super jealous. (laughs) But um, if you do want to work with me, then now is really, really the best time because otherwise I will not be in the country and I'll still be doing some bits and pieces of work whilst I'm over there. But obviously, I also want to be able to have a really nice time to relax a little bit more, take some time for myself and just be doing holiday things. So if you want to work together, I would suggest that now is very much the best time to get in touch. So generally in my signature gestational diabetes coaching package, I work with women over a period of time of six weeks, which I feel like we really, really need to be able to get the best outcomes for you. So We'll do weekly Zoom calls, we have daily check-ins, and that's just messaging, and I create meal plans customized to you every two weeks, and it is really the best way that I have figured out to be able to just take the mental strain out of gestational diabetes for you so that you can just get rid of that stress and overwhelm that you might have about the diagnosis, stop second-guessing absolutely everything that you're doing because I know that you can sometimes just be going through such a world of pain of like, oh my gosh, what should I even buy at the supermarket? Like, how am I going to be able to eat all of the things that I normally eat? And thinking that you can't cook the same meals as your family, you can't go out to eat, just feeling very isolated and very stressed about the whole thing. And it's also perfect if you simply just want to skip all of the trial and error and know that you're in safe hands, particularly if you've had a gestational diabetes pregnancy before. I find a lot of people come to me in their second pregnancy when they're thinking like they just don't want to have the same negative experience that they did the first time and want to know they're doing everything kind of fully this time. And also if you're experiencing any complications, for example, Um, On my stories yesterday, I was doing some Q&As and I know a couple of women got in touch who 
had been experiencing really bad um, nausea and vomiting and things like that. So if you're getting really bad symptoms and you're not actually able to eat very much, but you know you need to balance your blood sugars, that is a really good situation to get in touch too, so that we can really work out a plan that's going to work for you, your symptoms, make sure you are getting everything you need. So it's not just about balancing your blood sugar, it's also about making sure that your diet is really optimal to make sure that you and your baby are getting all of the nutrients that you need. And if you have any goals around your weight, like let's say that you are in a larger body and you really just need to be either maintaining your body weight or only gaining a small amount of weight, or if you're you know, struggling to eat enough and you need to be gaining enough weight, there are things that we can work on as well just to make sure that you have the healthiest pregnancy possible as well as Bub being born healthy and happy. So if you want to take all of the guesswork out of it, stop um, you know, stressing and freaking out over your blood sugar numbers and just be feeling generally good and energized and know that your whole lifestyle is supporting you and that you're going to have healthy habits that you can take with you for life, please join. Please get in touch. Touch wood, when this episode goes live, my website page will also be live, which is www.nutritionbyhelena.com. But otherwise, you can find me over at Instagram at nutrition.by.helena um, or you can send me an email at um, hello at nutritionbyhelena.com. But yes, please get in touch if that sounds like something that you would really like to explore. I would love to hear from you. But that is more than enough from me. So let's get into this episode with Elise. Enjoy. Hello, Elise. I'm so excited to have you on. And for everybody listening, Elise is another one of my beautiful clients that I previously worked with. And this is going to be quite an interesting, unique conversation because Elise is actually currently pregnant with her second baby. So she's had gestational diabetes in both of her pregnancies. And this is going to be, I think, one of the more powerful conversations to have because she's going through GD at the same time that you probably are if you're listening to this whilst you're pregnant. Um, So yeah, I'm very excited to have you on, Elise. Do you want to tell everybody who you are, a little bit about you? Thank you. I'm really excited. I think um, this is certainly something I was looking for in my first pregnancy, especially. So I'm excited to be able to to talk through it and it's going to be raw, I think, but mm. yeah, really, really helpful. Um, so I'm Elise, I'm 34. Um, I have a fiance, Jesse, um, and a almost three-year-old Ollie who's turning three at the end of next month. Um, so I am a psych. Um, I work predominantly with adolescents. Um, doesn't mean I've got my stuff together by any means, mm-hmm. um, but certainly helped. Um and yeah, I'm, I guess it's helpful, especially in the context of GD, I'm of Maltese ethnicity. So um, there's a lot of talk about, you know, certain backgrounds being more susceptible to GD. Um, both my parents um, are Maltese, so uh, Mediterranean European. Um, but yeah, it's a bit about me. That's, yeah, it's a really good point that you bring up that lots of different ethnicities have a greater risk of getting GD. And mm. that's unfortunate. That's kind of luck of the genetic draw, right? Yeah. But Let's take us right back. I think that what we'll do in this conversation is we'll touch on your previous pregnancy and birth and your current pregnancy and how you're going in terms of like preparing for birth and things like that. But do you want to take us back first and we'll go through your first pregnancy and birth? So first of all, like, were you trying to get pregnant? Um, 
funny you say that. So um, we had only just had the discussion that that we're ready to have a baby. I really, I've always wanted to be a mum. You know, I was like one of those teenagers who at 16, I was like, yep, give me a baby. I'll, I'll be fine. Um, glad I didn't jump in so soon, but absolutely loved babysitting, loved being around babies. Uh, whereas my partner had never held a newborn, had, you know, no experience with babies. So he was obviously a little bit more reluctant, um, but he ultimately was the one to decide that we were ready. Um, and we... I think for most of my life, I've struggled with my weight. So I've always been overweight. Um, I had lap band surgery that failed. Um, so it's always been kind of at the back of my mind that potentially falling pregnant is going to be difficult. Um, when I was a teenager, I was assessed for PCOS, um, but it was never formally diagnosed. Um, I was just essentially given the pill and that kind of masked all of the symptoms. So I think going into it, I kind of assumed it might take a year or two to fall pregnant. Um, and we were really lucky in that the first try, I must have just been ovulating that day and we'd fallen pregnant immediately. Wow. So that was a bit of a shock, um, a very welcome surprise. Um, but I think particularly when we talk about my second pregnancy, I kind of had the same expectation of falling pregnant that quickly. Um, so, yeah, so the first pregnancy was fine. Um, I didn't Fortunately, didn't experience any losses. Um, so that pregnancy was Ollie. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. It's so great that you got pregnant so quickly as soon as you yes. started trying. Must have <laughs> yeah. been a little bit overwhelming as well, though, I suppose. Like, how did you feel when you saw that pregnancy test? <laughs> a mixed emotions, I think. I was really excited. Um, I mean, I'd only just told my sister and my mum that we were trying. Mm. And then a few weeks later, it was like, it's happening. Um, yeah felt guilty, I think, because I, mm. I know a lot of other women really struggle, and I did as well, my second pregnancy, but really struggle to conceive. Um, and I recall when I went for my first scan um, and, you know, we're really excited. We want to see the heartbeat. And um, the sonographer was asking, you know, about our journey. And I said, oh, you know, it happened straight away. And, and she, I, I always remember this. She said, maybe keep that to yourself. Like, don't don't tell people that it happened so quickly. So I think from then, I was always really kind of guarded about how quickly we conceived. Um, but I know that everyone's different and, and now having struggled to conceive um, second time around, I understand that in a sense, but I also felt like I deserved to just celebrate it and be excited yeah. about it. And it kind of took that excitement away a little bit. Um, so, yeah, it's just something that that's always stuck with me, I think. Yeah, that's so interesting that, yeah, you must have been feeling quite a number of things at once. And it's a shame that um, that you did have that kind of guilt and feel like you couldn't celebrate this amazing thing that was happening. I'm sure you were celebrating, but just feeling conflicted about it internally. Um, but I think that it's equally important for people to hear these positive stories as well as to hear some of the more challenging things that can happen with fertility and pregnancy. But you know, it's, it is nice. And I think that everybody would just want to celebrate with you the fact that that mm. happened so, so easily, which is, which is great. And then once you were pregnant, what was that pregnancy like in terms of symptoms and things like that? Um, I mean, on the whole, it was relatively smooth sailing. I, I only recall maybe a handful of days where I was really nauseous. I didn't really experience much morning sickness. Um, not much fatigue. I was still training. So I still continued to do powerlifting up until probably the third trimester. 
um, bear in mind this was just pre-COVID. So it was end of 2019, um, beginning of 2020. So um, everything was still, you know, relatively normal at that point. Um, I mean, the pregnancy itself in terms of symptoms was fine. Um, Towards the end, though, and I think this ties into my gestational diabetes experience, I did experience more challenges um, in in the context of GD, um, which I can get into now or a bit later on. Yeah, no, we'll we'll get there. We'll get into that. Um, I was going to ask you just about your powerlifting because I think that's interesting Mm. as well. Like, did you have to modify that to much extent during your pregnancy? Um. Only slightly, I guess, in terms of the weight that I was lifting, I was a little bit more cautious, but I was so naive. I I didn't consider, you know, the fact that maybe lifting the weight that I was could lead to a a loss or anything like that. That never crossed my mind um, at all, actually, during that pregnancy. Um, And so because I was working with a coach, I'd been doing it for a number of years. I had really good form. Um, I kind of, I, I knew my body and I knew that, um, you know, I knew when I was pushing my limits. And so I would often kind of reduce the weight to maybe increase the reps. Um, but I did it with my partner as well. So we would go to the gym together and he was kind of keeping an eye on me as well. So I didn't feel like I was having to do it on my own. Mm. Um, and honestly, the reason I stopped is because we went into our first lockdown and we didn't have access to a gym. So Otherwise, I think I would have continued. Um, in saying that, though, I did gain a lot of weight in that pregnancy. So I think part of me, I've just been conditioned to feel like I had to exercise um, as a way of kind of ma- maintaining my weight. Um, so that was also part of the reason why I kept pushing. I probably shouldn't have or I probably didn't have to. But, um, yeah, I mean, the hospital was on board. They were aware of um, what I was doing and um, they were happy for me to continue. So. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the the most important thing there is just to have other like health professionals looking over that. I mean, it's not mm. within my scope to be able to know what the recommendations or the guidelines are in terms of or to advise, I should say, like on um exercise and things like that during pregnancy. I know that it's really beneficial to be able to continue exercising during your pregnancy. Not everybody can, but amazing that you could. And I think, like mm. I said, the most important thing is that you did have health professionals looking over what you're doing. So I'm sure they were all like reassuring you that that was safe and and whatnot. But yeah, to everyone listening, just make sure you do check with like a physio, your healthcare team, whoever. Yes. Um, but it is so great to be able to keep exercising during pregnancy, not just in terms of blood sugar management and things like that with GD, but just for your general pregnancy outcomes. So. If you can, everyone listening, please do continue exercising in a way that is safe for you. Um, And then were you going through the public or the private system? Like what was your care team like? Yeah, so I went through public um, because it happened so quickly. We didn't have private health insurance. We kind of had no choice. Um, So at that time I was living in Footscray, so kind of western suburbs of Melbourne, and so I was through the Royal Women's Hospital. Beautiful. Um, and then when were you tested for gestational diabetes? So when did you do the glucose tolerance test? Um, so I did it, I think at around 18 weeks. So because of my high BMI, um, uh, because of my ethnicity and because of the fact that there's a strong, you know, um, history of diabetes in my family, I was tested relatively early. So I think I, I did the GTT at about 18 weeks 
Uh, and I think the first education session was at about 20 weeks and that's when I started insulin. Yeah, okay. And how did you find out? Um, phone call. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I was at work, so um, I was in between seeing clients. Um, I was expecting a call, got the call, um, and, yeah, I was just told that I failed the test, I guess. So I hate mm. that they use that term. Mm. Um, and I remember it to this day. It was devastating. I cried mm. and cried and cried. Um, couldn't continue seeing my clients that day, had to reschedule them and get home. Um, and, yeah, it was it was a huge shock. Um, and it was only actually after I was diagnosed that my mum told me that she'd also had it in two of her pregnancies. Um, so it would have been nice to know beforehand because <laughs> I kind of would have just expected that I'd had a high chance of it. Um, but, yeah, at the time I just, yeah, had not even considered that. Um, I mean, I'd always, like I said, had issues with my weight, but I'd never, you know, had issues with my blood sugar levels or being told that I was pre-diabetic. Um, everything was always relatively within normal range. So, yeah, definitely was a shock. Yeah, it would have been really hard to hear that. And I sp- I've got a few questions. Like it's first of all, like the things that spring to mind is like you had so much working against you, right? Like if you had a family history of it, that's one of our strongest predictors of somebody being yeah. diagnosed with GD. And then as well, if you are from a ethnicity that is considered high risk, um, and if you have a higher BMI, like I'm going to record a podcast actually on all things like a, a podcast about all the risk factors and a separate podcast about weight and how that relates to gestational diabetes. So stay tuned for that. But yeah, like if you had those few things that were not working in your favor so much, then, you know, the odds were stacked against you, I suppose. Um, I wanted yeah. to ask, how long was it between doing the test and then getting that phone call? I think it was about a week. Um, and then a week after that, I went in for my initial um, education session. Yeah, okay. I think I I like to ask that question just because I know that a lot of people have different experiences with that and uh, might also be wondering like what to expect going into that test and like when that happens and then when they might get results and then when they might actually see somebody about it because it's quite a long gap if you think about it and how you must have been feeling in that headspace to have to wait you know a whole week after doing the test and then a whole nother week before you actually saw someone about it like what did that feel like yeah I mean at that point like I said I I hadn't expected Mm. to get the results at all because I thought I was fine um so I think just the wait between having been told that I was diagnosed with it and then going into my education session, actually starting to do something about it. I think that was probably the hardest because, you know, I, I'm a catastrophizer at best. And so I thought, you know, what's going to happen to the baby within this next week? You know, what can I eat? Like, I just felt like I was left in the dark a little bit. Um, and I recall, I think I had some social events that week. And so I was like, I don't even know if I can eat out. I, I don't know if I can still eat carbs. Like I had absolutely no idea. Um, what did you do in that week? Uh, stayed home. <laughs> just tried to, uh, a lot of Googling, which I really shouldn't have um, because there's just so much contradictory information out there. Um, and, yeah, I, I just, I, I laid low and I cried a lot. 
Oh, you poor Which probably thing. didn't help with my blood sugars, that's for sure. <laughs> you never know. And I mean, it, it sucks. It's so hard when you do just feel so isolated and confused. And like you said, mm. there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of great information. It's hard to know what is what when you are looking yes. at information online. Um, and yeah, it's such a shame that you felt like you had to miss out on social events and things. But I can imagine for a lot of you, especially in those early stages, that it can feel almost too overwhelming to want to talk about it, even, you know, aside from making menu choices and things like that, Mm. it just must feel so challenging and just, you must feel so alone. So I'm sorry you felt like that. And then yeah, tell me about the education session. So who was that with? Um, So that was run through the hospital um, with the diabetes educator and the dietitian. Um, It was very generic. It was very much... um, I guess for people who don't have a history of exercise or who've never had to worry about what they ate, um, you know, because of my history, because of the different times I've, I've tried to lose weight, I was very familiar with, you know, micronutrients and um, macronutrients and protein, fat, carbs, all of that. Um, and so I was very much, especially having worked with my coach, um, who I was actually doing a meal plan with, I was used to counting carbs and kind of um, using the scale measurements to know how much carbs I'm eating rather than, you know, a cup of rice or a quarter of a cup of this. Um, And so I came out of it just feeling even more confused because I guess the, the session itself was tailored, like I said, to women who might not exercise or might not have that kind of understanding. So it was very... Um, surface level almost yeah yeah it was um and so I left there thinking how am I going to do this like I need more tailored information which wasn't made available to me um not at that point anyway until I really push for it um so things like you know they they encourage resistance training with very light dumbbells and I'm like okay but I'm powerlifting 60 kilos Mm. like (laughs) should I be eating more carbs should I not be eating carbs at all um and all my questions were kind of dismissed in that you know you'll you'll be contacted by a dietitian you'll be contacted by a dietitian and so again I was Mm. left to wait (laughs) until I could get some more kind of personalized um support through the hospital And so then how long was that wait before a dietitian did contact you? That was a couple of weeks at least, I think. Um, and, yeah, so I saw a dietitian when I went into one of my scheduled hospital appointments um, mm-hmm. and had a chat to her. Um, and so prior to working out with a, pal, uh, with a coach, I had been doing keto for a while and that was working well. I'd lost a whole bunch of weight. Um, and so in my mind, I thought, okay, well, if I cut out carbs and I go keto, then it's fine. Like everything mm-hmm. will be fine. And I, I said that to her, um, and I actually read through some of the messages I sent to my partner about this meeting. Um, and I was encouraged to go back to do keto and keep up my powerlifting. And based on what I know now, that was completely the wrong information to be giving. Mm-hmm. But I recall at the time talking to a colleague about it, um, who had been doing keto when she'd recommended this low carb clinic and said, yep, they'll be able to help you. And I'd made an inquiry to, um, you know, in the hopes of not having to be on insulin, if I can just cut out carbs and I'll be able to manage it. Um, and so I put the inquiry through, but for some reason or another, I actually cancelled that. So I didn't follow through with that. 
Um, but I definitely started the keto um, again throughout the pregnancy with the support of the dietitian at the hospital. How um, interesting. Yeah. I, I'm not out here to undermine anybody else's advice, but and maybe they know something that I don't know, but for everyone listening, I would never don't recommend that. <laughs> that you do keto <laughs> when not. you have GD. No. Please don't cut out your carbs. Please don't go keto. Um, just in general, I have issues with the keto diet. I'm not mm. a big fan, um, but that's a podcast for another day. But, yeah, that's really surprising. Um, yeah, but I think I'm that's gonna... the understanding that that most women have, you know, even just looking yeah. through Facebook groups now, especially now that we're at kind of the 28-week mark, a lot of women are starting to get tested and diagnosed and their first kind of thought is, okay, I'll just cut carbs. And I'm like, please don't do that. Like I've done that and it doesn't work. And, you know, now that based on what you've taught me and, and what I've been doing this pregnancy, absolutely I'd never do that again. Yeah. And I, I see it a lot too. I go and lurk in Facebook groups and Reddit threads and things like that about JD. Mm. And um, yeah, I do see a lot of chat about the keto diet and everybody go and listen to my episode on carbohydrates, please. If you mm -hmm. need a refresher on why we want to include carbs during your pregnancy with GD. And I mean, each to their own, there are probably ways that you can make a keto diet safe. Um, and there are probably ways that you can make it adequate, pregnant or not. So, you know, everyone has different things that work for them, but I just, I would not recommend it during GD. So you saw the dietitian and that didn't sound like it was overly helpful. Did you get follow-up with her? I think maybe one other appointment after mm -hmm. that. Um, but yeah, it wasn't consistent. It wasn't, um, I think I touched base more with the diabetes educators. So I was required to contact them every fortnight and report my numbers. Um, but yeah, all, you know, all the recommendations were, okay, if your levels are high, just keep upping your insulin. <laughs> okay. And so what were you doing in terms of your diet? Um, so I cut out most of my carbs or everything was relatively low carb. Um, and I was put on insulin really quickly. So, um, my fasting levels within a week were consistently, you know, 5.5 or higher. Um, so I was put on protophane at night for my fasting levels. Um, and then maybe a week or two after that, I was put on Nova rapid, um, before every meal. And that's really what stuffed me up because I wasn't eating enough carbs and I was giving myself a lot of insulin, and I was experiencing a lot of hypo episodes. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, that I think that really took a toll on that pregnancy. Mm. I'm just going to clarify some of those terms for people listening, just in case you're unfamiliar. So here in Australia, most places will use five as the ballpark measurement for your fasting blood sugar level as the cutoff. So you want it to be five or less, ideally under that number. Um and in terms of like the insulin that Elise just mentioned, protophane is more of a long-acting insulin that is typically given overnight to help with that fasting blood sugar. And Novo Rapid is like like you said, one that is usually given with meals, and you adjust that based on the amount of carbs you're having, or you you do if you're any good at like carb counting. And otherwise, you might just have like a standardized dose. And the way it works, like when you're taking insulin, is that you generally need to be eating carbohydrates because otherwise it can drop your blood sugar low. And so that's called a hypo episode. So that's what we we're referring to there, just in case you're new to this and you don't know all the ins and outs of it yet. Um, 
But yeah, that must have been kind of stressful if you're having hypos and things like that going on and just feeling like, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but how were you feeling? I was really frustrated. I I was looking back again at messages that I sent my family at that point, especially my mum, because she is pre-diabetic and, and so she's been regularly testing her glucose. So she kind of knows um, what the ranges are. And um, I, I said to her, I think I think my levels were more stable before I was on insulin because once I was on insulin, I never heard the term carb counting. I never heard the term carb exchange. I was literally kind of pulled in for a 30-minute session. Here's the, you know, the injector. Here's how you do it. Here's how much you give. So I was on a standardised dose. Um, and so I had no idea. And so even though I was on insulin, my sugars were still all over the place. Um, and so... I essentially felt like I was just winging it. Like, yeah. and every time my levels would continue to spike, I was just told, just give yourself more insulin. And I was like, okay, I'll just give myself one or two more doses. And it just kept going up and up and up rather than actually them reviewing what I was eating or trying to kind of give me some kind of guidance um, in terms of, you know, how much carbs I should have been eating. Um, because bear in mind, I was not eating carbs and I was also doing a lot of exercise mm. and giving myself insulin. So, was a mess. It, yeah, oh it definitely could have been avoided. Um, but at that time, I think we'd already gone into our first lockdown in the early March um, 2020. Um, and so all the contact was through the, the phone. Um, and even then, there was very minimal contact from the hospital. So I just, yeah, had to kind of manage it on my own. Oh, gosh, that must have been so difficult. I can't even imagine your headspace at that time feeling I imagine you must have felt, you know, both frustrated and probably quite a lot of anxiety and stress going through mm. all of that because it can't be easy seeing, you know, blood sugar numbers that are all over the place when you feel like you're doing everything you can for it and you're taking medication and you've got so much on your to-do list at that stage, like to remember to take the insulin and then remember to check your blood sugar be thinking about what you can eat, be stressed about having low blood sugar, stressed about having high blood sugar, like, God, you yeah. must have been in all sorts. And, again, I'm so sorry that that was your experience. Like, that's just so difficult. And to anybody else out there that is feeling like that, you're not alone. Mm. You're not alone and it's not your fault. It's absolutely mm. not your fault, like, if you are feeling like that. But please know there's more support out there if that is how you're feeling and things just feel so chaotic and like you have nobody on your team, like there's always people that you can get on your team to to really sort that out for you because that shouldn't need to be how you're feeling. Um, I wanted to touch on as well, like you mentioned that you'd gained quite a lot of weight in your early pregnancy and I don't want to talk about it too much, but what happened in terms of your weight at that point after being diagnosed with GD? Like, did that stabilize or did that even go down? Because it sounds like you were eating potentially in a more restrictive way and still doing exercise and things like that. So what happened mm. there? Um, I gained weight very quickly. So it's that whole mentality, you know, you're eating for two, it's fine. Um, so I gained about 15 kilos in total. And I would say about 10 of those were in probably my first trimester or at least before I was even diagnosed um, with GD. So I don't know if that's also contributed to it. I know better now in terms of the fact that it's, you know, hormonal and got to do with the placenta. But, um, yeah, I definitely wasn't really paying attention to what I was eating. Um, and I think 
you know, touching on the hypos, I think at the time, because I didn't know any better, I thought it was fine. I thought it was actually better that my levels were low compared to mm. too high. I know that that's not the case now, but I thought, oh, okay, you know, if I have a hypo episode, then that's fine because, you know, my levels are, are, are low. Like it's the baby's not getting too much sugar. It's fine. Um, so, yeah, and that certainly wasn't even discussed with me. I was never really given any proper education about the impacts of experiencing regular hypos. Um, mm-hmm. It was more focused on don't let your levels spike. And I was like, okay, well, if I'm not letting my levels spike, then that's fine. Um, but in terms of my weight throughout the end, once I stopped training because of the lockdowns, that's when I continued to gain the weight. So I probably gained, you know, the last five kilos within the last month or so of the pregnancy. Um, so it, it kind of slowed down um, and then picked back up again towards the end. But I definitely didn't need to be gaining that much weight at all. Um, and I was kind of told a healthy weight gain would be around five kilos for my BMI. So I definitely exceeded that. Interesting. And I suppose like I didn't ask that question to make you feel bad or, you know, feel like you need to justify anything in any way because everybody is so different and everybody does gain different amounts of weight regardless of your starting BMI. We do have guidelines about it. And like I said, I'll record a whole episode about weight because I think that it's interesting. It's a delicate topic. I'm very aware of that, very conscious of that, Um, but it's worth discussing. And I suppose the reason I actually did ask you that question was to I suppose flag that if you're losing weight since starting eating with gestational diabetes, I'm hesitant to say since starting the gestational diabetes diet because I don't Mm -hmm. believe there is a gestational diabetes Mm -hmm. diet. But if you are somebody listening and you've been losing weight, I just want to say that's a bit of a red flag and you need to make sure that you're still at least maintaining your weight or gaining appropriate amounts of weight because that's it's not – like there may be risks associated with losing weight. And so it's not the time to be prioritizing that or to be celebrating that, I suppose. Mm. And and also just going back to what you said about low blood sugar being better in your mind. Um, I, yeah, again, I just want to really highlight that it's not a case of lower is better because we can easily fall into that trap and that mindset of thinking like, oh, okay, well, it's so much better. Like if I'm testing after my meal and my number is let's say like four as opposed to six, It's that's not the case because like you still need to be eating enough food and enough carbohydrates. And even if you don't have diabetes, then your blood sugar will naturally rise and fall. And that's just a normal process that happens when we eat. So there's nothing risky or wrong with that. It's okay for your blood sugar to rise after eating and you don't want to be experiencing those hypos, which could be a really traumatic experience as well. So um, how were you feeling as well in terms of what you were eating? Like, did you feel really restricted or were you quite happy with what you were doing? No, I felt restricted. Uh, Yeah. Um, Although I was so used to it because I'd been dieting on and off for most of my life. So it wasn't really anything new to me. Um, But I think there was a, a huge difference between the first trimester where I didn't know I had gestational diabetes and I was just kind of eating anything and everything compared to the remainder of my pregnancy um, where I was really conscious of what I was eating um, and really concerned about, you know, how much insulin I should be giving myself and what my blood sugars are doing. And yeah, it, um, it definitely wasn't fun. <laughs> 
So that must have been, again, quite challenging, feeling really restricted and like not satisfied with what you were eating. And I also know from working with you in your second pregnancy that you've had it, and I think you touched on it when you introduced yourself as well, that you've had some history of disordered eating in the past. And did you feel like any of that was being resurfaced? I think so. So I do have a history of, of binge eating disorder um, and also, you know, restricting. Um, yeah, I think so. I think because, you know, going into pregnancy, I thought that's the last thing I have to worry about. You know, as long as I'm eating healthily and, you know, I'm not, you know, constantly binging or eating a lot of, you know, quote unquote junk food, um, it would be fine. But then having to constantly be aware of what I'm eating and how many carbs I'm eating. You know, I was trying to shake that that mentality that carbs are bad. Mm. But this kind of brought it back up again because at the time I thought carbs are bad because it's spiking my sugar levels. And so it was very conflicting. Um, and, you know, especially I was pregnant over Christmas and Easter and, and that was really challenging as well because I just felt like I couldn't mm. enjoy myself. I couldn't participate with my family. Um, and it, it, yeah, it definitely brought up kind of memories of when I was going through periods of restriction and, and really drastic weight loss. And um, yeah, certainly not something I'd envisioned when I'd fallen pregnant. That's so tough. That's really, really tough. I think that that's something that I've noticed is quite a common theme with some of my clients. And maybe that's because people are more likely to reach out if there is a history of disordered eating and things like that. But I'm just noticing more and more that so many people are feeling those kind of disordered thoughts, like, you know, coming back up to a head during pregnancy and during GD because it is so restrictive and you've got all of those like kind of conflicting thoughts about like, oh, my God, a carb's good, a carb's bad, like mm. got to watch everything I'm eating, got to really fixate on it. And, yeah, that, again, can be quite traumatic to be going through. So it just sounds like it was such a roller coaster in this mm -hmm. pregnancy. And did you have anything else aside from the GD going on in terms of complications or anything like that? No, my blood pressure was always fine. Everything else was fine. Um, towards the end, we had a few scares where Bub wasn't moving. Um, I think we went to get monitored maybe three or four times um, towards those last couple of weeks. Um, and everything always came back clear. Um, but then, you know, at the birth, we realized things weren't normal and things weren't healthy. Um, and yeah, a lot of it had to do with the hypos that I was having and um, how I was managing the GD. Okay. We can go into that. And before we do, I want to ask, like, did you have conversations around your birthing preferences prior to that? Um, probably up until kind of the last trimester, I assumed that I would have a vaginal birth. Um, but then towards the end, because they kept saying, you know, Bub's on the 98th percentile, he's going to be a big baby, you know, there, there might be complications because of, you know, I'm only 149 centimetres and I was quite overweight. Um, and so there was concern around, you know, Bub getting stuck or, um, you know, having to have an emergency C-section anyway. Um, and so we decided that I would have a planned C-section at that point. And I was happy mm -hmm. to do that. Um, my mum had had two planned C-sections and she recovered really well. Um, I'd had, you know, laparoscopic surgery before, very different, but I'd had surgery before 
uh, with the lap band um, and I just thought that I would be able to recover quite well. So um, that was the agreement. I didn't go in with any set expectations, to be honest. I just wanted Bub to be out and healthy and for me to, to recover, you know, healthily. That's probably a good way to go into it, to have an open mind and be, you know, open to different options, but also to still be informed about your options. Um, That must have been kind of another tricky thing, knowing that Bub was measuring quite large. And Mm -hmm. was that consistent throughout the pregnancy? Yeah, yeah. So he was always on, you know, the 95th, 98th percentile throughout. Yeah. Okay. And then talk through what you mentioned before about finding out that things were a little bit more complicated at birth. Yeah. So um, we'd gone in for the C-section. Everything was fine. Um, It was the first one of the day, so it was really early. Um, Bub's heart rate was fine. Everything was good. Um, Went in and, oh, God, I'm going to cry. When they took him out, he wasn't breathing. Um, and so I actually read the discharge summary and they said they had to perform CPR. Um, he was purple. Um, they rushed him away straight away um, and called the NICU team in. Um, and, oh, I'm so yeah. sorry. Oh, sorry. You're okay. You tell me if you, if you want to stop, take a break, anything. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Having a C-section is bizarre because you're essentially left there on your own. I told my partner straight away, you know, if something were to happen, you go with the baby and leave it. Um, and so he did. Um, they ended up resuscitating him in the theatre um, and put a CPAP machine on him and a feeding tube, and I was able to see him briefly um, before they took him away. Um, and... I remember the last thing one of the doctors said was, you know, we'll need to assess for any neurological damage to see, you know, they don't know how long he wasn't breathing for, so there was a risk of any kind of brain damage. Um, I was put into recovery on my own um, for hours, and that was terrifying. Um, So I was able to see him that afternoon, um, and he was in the NICU and the special care for around nine days um, and on a CPAP to help with regulating his breathing um, for about five or six of those. Um, so that was really hard, not being able to really hold him. And when I was able to hold him, it was connected to so many wires. And mm. um, he actually wasn't a big baby. He was 3.4 kilos. Bang um, on so average. All, yeah. yeah, all that talk about him being a big baby, you know, and they do say there are, there are errors um, and it's always not, you know, accurate. Um, but, yeah, so that was really difficult. Um, no neurological damage, thank God, um, and no long-term damage, um, but they really weren't sure what happened. Um, and so, you know, they hypothesised that maybe because I'd been experiencing a whole bunch of hypos that it was a sign that maybe the placenta was shutting down Um and they connected that back to the GD, but still were really unsure as to what was going on. Um, they suspected he might have early onset sepsis. So he was on um, antibiotics. Um, I wasn't able to breastfeed. I wasn't even able to try for about a week. Um, and so that caused complications in that aspect as well. Um, so, yeah, it was all pretty traumatic. Um, and I felt a lot of guilt because I thought, 
I'd done this, you know, I wasn't eating properly or I wasn't managing my diabetes well enough. Um, and I don't think the hospital made me feel like that, but because we had no answers, I just kind of took it to, took it to mean that, you know, it could have been avoided, which no one will know. Um, but there was a risk that if we had continued to wait out the 40 weeks and do a, a you know, a vaginal birth, there could have been a risk of, of losing him. So that was really traumatic. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for sharing. Firstly, that's that's huge and that can't be easy to talk about. Clearly still can't be mm. easy to talk about and go back into. So thank you so much for, you know, being so willing to share that story with us. And I'm so sorry again to hear that. That's just, it must have been the worst feeling in the world. Like I, I, I can't put myself in your shoes. I don't know how that must have felt being in that recovery room and not knowing what was going on. Um, how, how many weeks were you when you had that planned, Caesar? Uh, 38 in one day. 38 in one day. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then when your, when your partner was with Ollie, how was he feeling? so hard I really felt for him because I think he was really trying to hold it together for me um but then also you know thank god it was just before they changed the restrictions of the hospital so we were allowed to be with him 24 7 we were invited to spend the night in the NICU if we wanted to um I was actually discharged after three days um and so that was really hard going home without Ollie Mm. Um, we were there first thing in the morning until very late at night you know I think I completely forgot that I'd had major abdominal surgery. Um, so I really, you know, I didn't want to wait for the midwives to take me in a wheelchair. I would yeah. walk across to the NICU, um, hobble across. Um, yeah, that was really hard. I was calling, you know, throughout the night. Every time I'd wake yeah. up to pump, I'd be calling to check on him. Mm. Um, I mean, I can't fault the NICU staff. They were amazing and they went above and beyond. Um, but, yeah, it was the longest I think it was nine days, longest nine days of my life, honestly. Gosh, I bet. I bet. Oh, my God. I've got so many questions. Um, <laughs> hopefully I can retain them all. So before you went in, had you gone and had a look around the NICU or anything like that? Did you have any expectation nothing. of what that would be like? No, no, nothing at all. Um, I think because at that point, like I said, COVID was already spreading. True. They were really trying to minimise. So we didn't have any face-to-face um, birthing classes. Yeah. Um, everything was online. Um, they were really, you know, restricting the number of people that could go in and out to the birthing suites. Um, mm. So I went in completely blind. Um, yeah. yeah, so that was really hard. Um, Must have been. Yeah, not having any kind of anything to expect like no preparation as to where he would be and the logistics of it all and fortunately at that time we lived you know a 10 minute drive away from the hospital so it was really easy for me to go home it was actually probably better that I went home to recover um but you know I I really feel for women who the lady next to me actually had twins that same day and they were both taken into NICU um at a different hospital and she was discharged and lived you know an hour away um, and had to leave her babies at the hospital, and I really, really felt for her. So in that sense, I was fortunate that we did live so close, um, but I couldn't imagine, you know, having been separated from him and, and having to travel those long distances while sort of recovering from, you know, a C-section. Absolutely, absolutely. And 
I suppose, again, like why I asked that question too was not to scare anyone or frighten you or think that you need to be prepared for the worst, but I, I think that it might also be helpful for people if it's available to them to be able to go and see the special care nursery and be, to be able to see the NICU as well just yeah. so that you do have something in your mind in case anything happened because we are so much better at coping with what we have some concept of, I suppose. But for you, obviously, really tricky in COVID times too. Yes. Um, yeah. And then did, like before you went in for the section, like did you have any thoughts around delayed cord clamping or things like that that probably weren't made available to you because of the situation? But had you heard about any of that stuff? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> nothing. I'd never come across it online. Um, at that point, I only had maybe one midwife appointment. Um, so even things like breastfeeding, expressing colostrum, yeah. you know, very minimal support was provided in that sense. Um, I yeah. wasn't given anything to express colostrum in. I was just told, do it. <laughs> and mm-hmm. here are some pamphlets. Um, and then, yeah, breastfeeding was really tricky. And so I didn't yeah. receive any of that. Um, prior to to having Ollie, yeah. Okay, that's tough. And let's let's talk about like breastfeeding and that kind of thing. But as well, like, did you find it difficult to bond with him, given that he'd been taken away so quickly, or was that still something that was um, quite natural? That yeah, fortunately, that came really naturally. I mean, we right. were by his side twenty four seven, literally just staring yeah. at him <laughs> in the incubator. We weren't able to really touch him. Um, we did have a little bit of skin on skin, um, maybe a, a day or two after. Uh, but again, poor thing yeah. was covered in wires. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm glad that it didn't, it was certainly a concern of mine, especially because you hear so much about, you know, when you have a C-section, get them to put them on your chest straight away yeah. and, you know, do do that bonding and make sure that they can practice, you know, latching on almost immediately. Yeah. And I, yeah, we weren't given that opportunity, mm-hmm. but that was out of anyone's control, really. Absolutely. And so then um, it sounds like you weren't really able to try breastfeeding, I think you said, for that whole duration whilst he Mm. was in the NICU. That must have just felt so hard. I don't even know what to ask. That just must have been so hard. And so then what was that journey like? Really rough. Um, So I I had expressed a little bit of colostrum, but really not enough. Um, And having read his discharge summary, I completely, I think, just forgot all about it or tried to repress it. Um, but they did have to give him, I think, sugar water because his blood sugars were low okay. um, and I didn't have enough colostrum to give him. Um, so I was sent home, you know, with a breast pump that I hired from the hospital and was told, you know, start, you know, pumping at these times as if you were, were feeding him. Mm-hmm. So I was waking up throughout the middle of the night. And I was getting barely anything. Um, and throughout the whole pregnancy, actually, my breasts didn't change. You know, I was expecting these big, voluptuous breasts and nothing. Um, I didn't even go up a cup size. So I was already a little bit concerned about that. Um, but I don't think I'd ever flagged that with the hospital, to be honest. Um, and so, yeah, because he had a feeding tube and he was all connected to the wires, it was actually too risky to take the CPAP off to even try mm-hmm. breastfeeding him for at least the first week. Um, and then when I did, uh, he actually latched really well, but I just wasn't producing enough. So mm-hmm. that was really difficult because I felt, you know, there was one NICU nurse in particular who really 
made me, not her intention, but I felt awful. I felt like I was doing something wrong. You know, I was essentially told you need to be pumping more. And I'm like, I am pumping, but nothing's coming out. Like, what do you want me to do? Um, And I was told that uh, I was essentially given an ultimatum. You either introduce formula or he doesn't come home. And I really wanted him home, but I really didn't want to introduce formula. And I think the reason I didn't want to introduce formula is because in my mind, you know, formula-fed babies have weight issues growing up. And, you know, I was a formula-fed baby and I don't want him going through the same weight issues I had. Um, So that really killed me and I cried a lot over that as well. Um, So we ended up uh, mixed feeding and I persisted for about four months, but he was stressed out, I was stressed out, I just wasn't producing enough milk. Um, And so we just ended up giving in to, to formula. And then he thrived and it was fine, but... Yeah, it was really tough feeling like I had no choice in the matter, essentially. Oh, gosh. Again, like so hard, so hard going through all of those emotions and that whole experience. Like it just, like I said, I I don't don't even know how you must have been feeling. I want to reassure everybody listening, there's nothing wrong with formula and fed is best. (laughs) All babies Mm -hmm. that are fed that that's the right thing to do no matter whether it's the breast milk or whether it's formula feeding whether they've got a feeding tube like whatever it is like fed is best for a baby mm-hmm. so if somebody's recommending formula to you and you want to be breastfeeding like please just don't feel fear around that i suppose and i'm not trying to shame you or anything elise i think that you know you obviously like had things to work through in your head about it but you made the right decision in the end because it's about, you know, making sure that your baby is getting all of the nutrients that they need and formula is worked out very, very specifically for these situations mm. so that it really replicates breast milk. Obviously, it doesn't replicate it exactly, doesn't have some of those amazing like um, immune system benefits and things like that, but they do a pretty good job of making it pretty similar. And if a baby is being fed, that's the best thing. That's that's mm. what matters. Um, yeah. And that's one thing I wish I'd been told in that some women physically just cannot produce breast milk and that's okay. Like I was put on medication, I think it's domperidone to try and increase my supply. And I just, apparently I just didn't have the breast tissue to be able to produce enough milk. And I think the same might happen this time around, but I'm now expecting that and I'm, I'm, okay with that if if that's what happens so um prepared yeah, yeah I wish I'd yeah I wish I'd been told that and been told that that it's okay that mm-hmm. you know yes there's a lot of stigma associated with formula feeding but honestly if, if you can't do it and if it's better for your mental health that you don't breastfeed then that's okay too you know yep. as long as the baby's fed they're going to be healthy and you know I can't look at a lineup and kind of pick out who's formula fed and who wasn't like that's it works (laughs) absolutely that's that's hit the nail on the head I think like you'd never know who's been formula fed and who hasn't Mm. been formula fed like it's just it's just something that happens for some people and it doesn't make you a worse mum it doesn't mean anything about you it just means if anything you're an incredible mum doing what your baby needs Mm. um I want to touch on the fact that you said Ollie had low blood sugar as well so do you know how long that took to regulate I'm honestly not sure. Sure, um, that's okay. Yeah, I think that it, it wasn't long because I recall they had to do, I think, the three 
pricks um, yep. that afternoon to, to check his levels and it was fine by the end of the day. Great. Um, so I think it was just like a short-term um, solution, yeah. I guess, but yeah. Yeah, and I suppose, again, like for everybody listening, because that can be confusing, thinking why has a baby got low blood sugar if you had high blood mm. sugar all this time? So what's going on there is that the baby's pancreas may overproduce insulin if they've been used to having like a higher sugar environment during the pregnancy because that's being fed through from your body into their body through the placenta. So if that once they've been born, once that kind of sugar supply gets cut off, their pancreas may still overproduce that insulin, but there isn't enough sugar in their blood to um, balance that out, I suppose. So that can drop their blood sugar low. So that's good that it did regulate out nice and quickly. And what about for you? Did your blood sugar get checked? Uh, I think so. Uh, well, I was told I had to continue testing um, with the finger pricks, I think, for the next day or two, um, and that was all normal. It went back right. to normal range. Um, and then I did the GTT, I think because of COVID, it wasn't until maybe 10 weeks later, um, mm. and that was fine as well. Fantastic. And again, everyone listening, gestational diabetes generally goes away after you've given birth, so that high blood sugar will go away after that placenta is out of your system. And you do have still have a higher risk of getting gestational diabetes again and potentially getting diabetes later in life. So it's really important to do that follow-up check, but you're pretty much usually good to go post the birth. Um, and then what was your recovery like from the cesarean? You said you kind of forgot or you just yeah. disregarded a, f a few times that you'd no. actually just had major surgery, but tell me about it. It was fine. I recovered really well. I probably did too much too soon in that, you know, once I got home, I was up and cleaning and, you know, just doing normal things around the house. Um, I'd lost a whole bunch of weight really quickly, um, even though I wasn't breastfeeding. I know that there's, you know, an assumption that that helps, but no, my recovery was really good and it has been right. since. I've had no, you know, numbness or tingling or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, really pleased with that at least that I recovered well so that I could focus more on on Ollie and, and bringing him home. Fantastic. That's great to hear. And I guess I just also want to go back to having the cesarean because that's a fear that I think a lot of people hold. Like how did you find that experience and like did you know much about it before going into it? I didn't know much and I didn't do much research and obviously I didn't have access to you know the birthing classes like I normally would have um but given that my mum had had two I'd known a lot of people who had um elective c-sections but also emergency c-sections um it's I mean I was I, I do have a history of anxiety so I was a little anxious just about the feeling of being numb <laughs> from you know your neck down that was very odd um but it was fine. I found everyone to be lovely. You know, the um, the surgeon and the anesthetist asked, you know, what music would you like to play? And we were able to have our own playlist. And um, that was really nice and comforting. And yeah, the, the team there were just fantastic. I yeah couldn't fault the actual procedure itself. And it was really quick. Um, but it was just, yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> the, what happened with Ollie with was, yeah, yeah, it was really um, not what I'd planned. <laughs> no, it's positive though that you did have an actual positive like experience of the mm. surgery and whatnot. 
Because again, I just think that that's something that can be so hard to get your head around. Like if you're in the, during your pregnancy and, you know, worried about what might be to come. So yeah, thanks for sharing that too. And then how's Ollie now? Like, how did he go after you got to take him home and, you know, how did all of that pan out? Yeah, good. Um, The last day before we were discharged, they, one silver lining about being in the NICU is that they're very thorough. So they checked everything um, that may have been unrelated to what he was even in there for. So they did an echo um, of his heart and found that he had a little murmur, um, which was a a slight kind of hole in the septum of his heart. So we did need to do some follow-up the Royal Children's for that, Um, but he's since been cleared. Everything's fine. There's no long-term impacts of that. Um, But otherwise, I mean... He was a, a kind of average size baby when he was born and he was a very chubby, you know, mm-hmm. infant, I guess. Um, so, yeah, he was very, very happy and healthy and, yeah, you, you'd good. not be able to look at him and, and know what he'd gone through at all. Um, and, yeah, I'm so grateful every day that, you know, yeah. he's healthy and happy and, um, yeah, despite what we went through. yeah it worked out well gosh you're amazing for getting through that and just an amazing mum and thank god he's okay and he is thriving he's a happy healthy little boy that's just the best thing to hear um I want to uh, I know we've been talking for ages but I really want to talk about your current pregnancy as well so Talk us through then after having Ollie, like how long was it before you felt like you were ready to get pregnant again, if that's something you were planning? So, you know, tell me, like, what was that journey like? Um, I remember about after a year, uh, we looked, Jesse and I looked at each other and we're like, this is amazing. Like he was such an, I hate saying easy baby, but, you know, we were in lockdown. So we'd had a lot of time to spend with him. Jesse was working from home. It was really nice and it was really calm. We didn't have many visitors. Like it was actually the perfect kind of bubble. um, Yeah, it was wonderful. Um, And so after that, we're like, yeah, we'll do this again. Like, absolutely, let's let's do this again. But because I'd had a C-section and because I was still kind of trying to process the trauma of that birth, Mm. um, I wanted to give my body time to recover and and I'd had some chronic back issues. So I'd had um, probably from about six months postpartum to about 18 months postpartum I'd had chronic um, tailbone pain um, which made you know sitting standing just living really difficult Mm. Um, and I think a lot of that was because because of COVID I didn't actually have many of the postpartum checks that I should have Um, so I didn't go see a physio I didn't you know check for ab separation or anything like that Um, and I, I really should have and so I didn't want to put that strain on my body and fall pregnant again until I got that sorted out. So um, I'd been working with myotherapists, physios, osteos, um, and finally started seeing a wonderful pelvic health, um, pelvic floor physio um, and was able to to sort through that. So at about the um, 18-month mark, I think, I was starting to think about the age gaps between the babies Mm -hmm. and, you know, I'd, I'd always loved my sister and I are about two and a half years um, apart and I really loved that that age gap. So um, I think we started trying at about 
18 months to two years postpartum. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we fell pregnant within the second cycle. Um, and unfortunately we had a miscarriage, um, mm. at about eight weeks. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the start of the journey to conceiving. Yeah. Baby number two. Oh, that must've been hard. And like, I, I feel like it must've been hard even just mentally to get your head around having another baby, given all of the trauma of that first mm-hmm. birth. And so credit to you for being able to just, you know, get back on the saddle and feel like you were ready to do it again. But so, um, so horrible to have had that miscarriage and, I, again, I don't, I don't, I can't even imagine how it must feel for you and for people who have gone through that and who are going through that to be so hopeful and then to experience that lost and uh, loss. Mm. Sorry, and sometimes there's no closure or explanation and things like that can just be so tricky. Um, and then was that your only miscarriage, or did you have some more difficulty? Yeah, so um, that was. Uh, just a really confusing process because um, I'd made it to eight weeks. I think that was our dating scan um, and we were told there's no heartbeat, you're measuring at five weeks, but that's okay, come back and and retest and it'll be fine. Mm. Um, And by that point I'd already started bleeding, but I kind of still held on to hope that everything would be fine. Um, So that was really awful. Um, I I managed that at home. I didn't have to get a DNC. Um, it just, yeah, my body just did its thing. Um, and then I, I wanted to get back into it straight away because in my mind, the longer it took, the further apart, you know, in age, the babies would be. And I, for some reason was so determined to have babies close together. So we started trying again. It took forever. Um, and at that point, um, you know, there was a lot of I guess, pressure that I was putting on myself, you know, if I don't conceive now, this is the age gap. If I do conceive now, you know, my sister was getting married and so I didn't want to be heavily pregnant around her wedding time. And so I think I was just overthinking it. And so we decided to take a bit of a break um, uh, for a couple of months. And then um, that break, I guess the purpose of that break was for me to re-engage with a personal trainer get back into exercise, really make sure that my body's ready um, for pregnancy. So um, it wasn't to lose weight, but it was just to feel healthy again, Um, especially after the chronic back pain. I just wanted to be moving again and and feeling healthy again. So um, did that, fell pregnant again, um, and then had another early miscarriage at about six Mm -hmm. weeks, um, which sucked because I was so hopeful um, and Yeah, that was really, really difficult. Um, And then before even having my next period after that miscarriage, I felt a bit funny and I thought just test for the sake of testing. I had so many tests that I just wanted to get through them and I was pregnant. Um, So I had no cycle in between the the miscarriage and um, this pregnancy Um, and so far so good. (laughs) So interesting. I'm so sorry again. Like it's just... I don't even have the words for how must how awful it must have felt like, you know, being at the scan and not having a heartbeat and things like that. And it's just, yeah, that's what a roller coaster though, to then find out that you are pregnant. Like, did you even believe it when you saw that no. test? <laughs> no, not at all. I'd taken the test, I'd left it, you know, by the sink while I was in the shower. 
and I wear glasses and so I can't see very clearly, but I looked out when the timer went off and I could see a very clear line. And so I jumped out of the shower and ran to Jesse and I was like, I think part of me, for the second miscarriage during that pregnancy, I was really scared. And so I didn't let myself enjoy it. I didn't tell anyone. (laughs) I was super anxious the whole time. Um, And so it didn't make it any easier to lose that pregnancy. So for the third, you know, this current pregnancy, I was like, I'm just going to enjoy it and celebrate it and hope for the best. Um, And so, yeah. (laughs) And it's still going. um, Still going, still going. But yeah, I think at that point, I didn't even want to tell my family until I knew for sure that you know, I was in the safe zone, um, which didn't last very long because I told them and my colleagues pretty quickly. But um, yeah, it definitely wasn't something that I planned to happen so quickly, especially after the the miscarriage. Yeah. I mean, congratulations though. What an amazing (laughs) feeling. (laughs) And, And let's talk about this pregnancy. So are you going through the public system again? Yes. So going through the public system, but because we um, moved further out west. I'm actually through um, Joan Kerner at Sunshine Hospital. Okay. And how were you finding the pregnancy in terms of symptoms and things like that? Yeah, good. Um, it felt very different to Ollie's pregnancy. I was so determined I was having a girl, um, but having another boy. Um, but yeah, felt very nauseous in the first trimester. I didn't vomit, but just really unwell. Um, and really, really fatigued. And I think having a toddler exacerbates all of those symptoms again. Um, so the first trimester was pretty rough, um, but everything's settled down since. So, um, you know, touch wood, everything seems to be going smooth sailing so far. Touch wood. And as well, like when you're feeling really sick, you weren't in lockdown at that point. So you can't hide away so much yes. for this pregnancy. Which is hard yeah. too when you uh, yeah you got to be out in the world and with a toddler. I think that um in some ways we can underestimate like how tricky a second pregnancy can be because it's like oh I've got this like you've done it before, but when you actually then have a child that you've got to look after because you've been through it once, you know, by nature of having been through it once, you've then got the outcome of that. Like you've got a little boy to look after, so that must make it much more difficult to yes. manage. Absolutely. And I can't lay down. I can't, you know, I still go to gymnastics with him and do all these activities and it's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then when did they want to test you for GD this time? So my GP tested me, I believe about eight or 10 weeks. I think it was just part of the, oh, we didn't expect you to fall pregnant so quickly. So let's just mm-hmm. do all the routine tests again, um, even though I'd only just done the tests. Um because I guess they wanted to, on the one hand, they wanted to investigate why I was having continuous miscarriages. Yeah. We, we still weren't sure why we had the two. Um, so they, they did all the thorough testing um, and I got a call actually from the hospital. So I didn't know that I'd already been referred to the hospital. Um, right. Initially, I wanted to go back to Royal Women's. Um, I don't know why, I just because it was familiar, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I re- yeah. was referred to Sunshine. Um, and the midwife called me and said, oh, we just got your results back from the GP and um, your fasting levels are a little bit high. Um, but because you saw the first trimester, we're not going to do anything to treat it at this point. It's still too early. Um, so they wanted to wait till week 13 to retest. Um, so I didn't have to do the GTT. It was just um, fasting blood sugars. Um, 
and yeah, then I was diagnosed. So I kind of essentially had it really early, um, but wasn't formally diagnosed until the second trimester. Interesting. And that must have also just felt like a really long stretch of time ahead of you, knowing, I suppose, like at around that kind of eight-week-ish mark already that Mm. you were probably going to have GD and that it was going to be a really long pregnancy of managing that, especially having had the experience that you did the previous pregnancy. So what was it like finding out and, you know, that whole education process again? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't shocked. Um, not that I thought I had it because I'd already been working with another dietitian prior to working with you, um, more so around the binge eating and getting that all sorted. Um, Mm -hmm. and, um, my, my fasting levels had actually improved between the tests. So even though it was higher, it was getting better, I guess, and, and towards the normal range. Um, so I was feeling healthier already. I was eating healthier, um, you know, so although I wasn't shocked, I was like, oh, all this hard work that I've been doing to try and avoid it and I still end up getting diagnosed. Um, but I know because of the history and everything, I just kind of expected I would get it again. Um, so that that in itself was fine. I didn't cry. I wasn't stressed. I just took it as yeah. it is what it is. I can't do anything about it. I'm just going to roll with it, but I'm going to get more support this time. So mm. I was determined to seek out my own support and not have to rely on the the hospital um, to to offer that support. So that process itself was fine. I guess the the challenging process was the wait between, okay, your fasting levels are high at eight weeks, but we can't do anything till 13 weeks. And I was told that it does increase my chance of having another miscarriage, but we can't really do anything about it. And so I, that was really hard because I was like, I don't know what to be doing. I don't want to yeah. do what I did last pregnancy, but I also don't want to get, you know, caught up in Google and trying to figure it out myself. So even though I was working with another dietitian, she didn't specialize in gestational diabetes. So we were just kind of trying to maintain a, a balanced diet mm-hmm. until we we had more information and until she kind of knew what my fasting levels were and could maybe offer some more tailored support. Yeah, that's so interesting that they didn't want to manage it because you'd think like if we know, then you'd be able to start right away. I wanted to ask, at what point did you or had you stopped the keto diet post-pregnancy? Yeah, I didn't go back onto the keto diet after I had Ollie. I was just, um, I think I was more focused at that point on um, uh, increasing my milk supply. So I was just eating you know, all the oats and, and everything I could. Um, so that was more my priority than anything else. Okay. That's good to know. And so then you were working with the dietitian, which is fantastic around the binge eating and that kind of thing. And so then you got your diagnosis. Did you then go through the hospital in terms of getting education there as well? Yeah. So it was kind of a you had no choice but to go um, yeah. to get the glucose meter and um, of yeah. Uh, yeah, get all of that. So I did go to that, um, but I kind of went in there just kind of assuming this is going to be another generic session. I know all this stuff already. Um, and it, yeah, it was like that. I didn't learn anything new, unfortunately. And when I did ask, you know, can you give me more guidance around, you know, grams how much how many grams of carbs I should be eating compared to just like half a cup or a cup I was just told that I had to wait to speak to the dietitian 
Okay. And then how long was it until you did get to see the dietitian? Um, I didn't actually see her. She called me, uh, I think, within a week. Um, but again, it was, you know, we don't want you to be counting carbs. You don't need to be counting carbs. And like, yeah, it just wasn't helpful. So that's when I reached out to you. <laughs> mm, so it wasn't working for you. Yeah. And I suppose I also just want to say like, everyone's really different. Like for some people, it is going to work to have like grams of carbs all like mapped out and to be counting that. And for some people, it is going to work fine to use cups and measurements and things or to just Mm. use like a plate model. So don't feel like if you're listening to this, like, oh my God, I'm not counting carbs. Like I'm doing it all wrong. That's, that's not it. Like that's not what Elise is saying and not what I'm Mm. saying. Like there's no wrong or right way to manage GD. And for me as well, when I'm working with people, like I don't always like encourage that you need to be counting your carbs or anything like that. That's just um, what's working for you. So you felt like you needed more support. So then mm-hmm. that's when we crossed paths. But talk us through the experience of like seeking out that support, I suppose. Like, did you find there was much out there? Um, I mean, I came across you on Instagram. Um, so I'd already been following I think once I got that initial phone call from the midwife saying your fasting level is a little bit high, I was already seeking out whatever information I could find. And mostly on Instagram, um, I was following Robin, I think. Yeah, who's, beautiful yeah, Robin. So she has a lot of like really lovely kind of infographs and um, recipes and stuff. So I was following her um, and listening to a lot of podcasts and things like that um, from dietitians and not just from random people. I was really seeking out, um, you know, evidence-based kind of um, content. Um, And then that's, yeah, that's where I found you. And I thought, I think coming into this pregnancy, I'd been tossing up between private or public. And, you know, I'd just been told that if for some reason Bob needs to go into the NICU again, it's likely that in a private, they might have to transfer him to another hospital because some private yeah. hospitals don't have, you know, yeah. the equipment, um, everything. The equipment, yeah. yeah. So I thought just to be safe, you know, I had a relatively good experience of public. I want to use the money that I'm saving through private health to actually seek out my own support and get more allied health kind of support and holistic support. So, um, yeah, that's when I thought, all right, I'm going to book in an initial consult with you. And then that's when you um, were talking about your coaching program. And so mm-hmm. I was like, Jess, I've saved this money. I need to do this. Um, I don't want to have the same experience as I did last time. I want to feel more well-informed and um, feel like I can advocate myself a little for myself a little bit more. Um, and, yeah, so that's why I, I sought out your support. And I'd been doing that already when I was working with the prior dietitian and the yeah. PT. It was all to make sure that I have the tools and and the knowledge um, to be able to to make better decisions and and feel like I'm going into this pregnancy in a more kind of healthier um, mindset and and body. Yeah, and I mean it's it's always tricky when when I'm trying to ask questions about like the support you got with me because I'm not trying to not trying to um, spruik myself too much, but I want to know like how you felt I suppose especially like emotionally when you did have that support on board like what changed for you and can you compare this pregnancy to the previous one oh this pregnancy has been so different um I think because I've got I've had that support and I've not felt like I'm doing it alone um I'm still not getting much support from the hospital so this time around they don't ask me to contact the diabetes educators every fortnight to report my numbers 
Um, that's kind of an option that's available to you if you like, but you don't have to do that. Um, and I have had two sessions with the hospital dietitian, but I'd already been working with you and they were really happy for me to continue um, because it meant more consistent support and more kind of tailored support. Um, but, yeah, I just I, I felt like I could breathe and I felt like I didn't have to wing it um, and I felt more, I've been feeling more in control of what I'm eating and what my numbers are doing and I've not had any kind of unexplained spikes or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, it's definitely been a lot less stressful this time around. Um, and just even in terms of education, like I feel more well-informed and I feel like I know more about GD now because of, you know, the the support that you've given me and, and you know, your podcasts and your Instagram page and all of that. So, um, yeah, it's definitely been more of a breeze this time around. Amazing. That is so nice for me to hear. It's so good to know when you're just feeling so much better within yourself mm. and because it just sounds like you had such a horrific time in the previous pregnancy and so it's just the best feeling for me to be working with people and to be knowing that we're having that like positive experience that like goes beyond what you're eating, right? Like it can affect mm. your whole life in terms of feeling like you can see people eat different food. Like I think you actually did end up having your sister's wedding and things like that yeah. and not <laughs> feeling like completely guilt-ridden and anxious about it to be able to know how to navigate those yes. situations. It can make such an enormous difference to your life and your well-being and just how you're feeling emotionally, right? Absolutely. Yes. I'm eating carbs. I'm eating a lot of food. Um, I went on a holiday where yeah. I had no access to, you know, my, my own kitchen and things like that. And yeah, it all turned out fine. Um, and I think if that had happened in my previous pregnancy, gosh, my insulin dose would have just been through the roof because I just yeah. would have kept up in my insulin thinking I was doing the right thing. And what are you, I've got a couple of questions. Like, what are you eating this time around? How's that different? And are you taking insulin? Yes. So um, within a week of being diagnosed, I had been testing every, you know, every morning and after meals. Um, and my fasting levels, unfortunately, weren't as high as the previous pregnancy, but were on the cusp. So, so I think my hospital, I think this is also what I find really tricky. Every hospital and every state seems to have different thresholds as to what's yeah. normal and what's not. So my hospital, um, the fasting levels have to be 5.1 or below and then post-meal 6.8 or below. So my fasting was kind of, I think the highest it got was around 5.6. Um, so I was put on a really low dose of protophane at night. Um, that's crept up a little bit, but not as much as um, I was on previous pregnancy um, and no insulin for meals at the moment. So I'm really happy about that um, because I've had that one less thing to stress about in terms of having to determine how much insulin um, I need to give myself. Um, and in terms of diet or, or what I'm eating, I really appreciated the meal plans that you gave me because that took all the stress out of it. I didn't have to think of it. I'm just eating a lot. I, I told Jesse, my partner, I don't remember the time, the last time I ate so much vegetables and I'm actually enjoying <laughs> it. So, you know, <laughs> heaps of veggies. Um, I'm doing a lot of meal prep, which I'm enjoying and it's making, you know, dinner times a breeze. We're all eating the same. So my toddler eats the same as what I'm eating. Um, and I think when I was working to, with the previous dietitian, one of, um, I guess, my danger foods or foods that I, I tend to 
binge on would be things like muesli bars or, or you know, convenient snacks. Um, and I still eat those and, you know, it, it doesn't trigger my binge eating because I'm feeling so satisfied. And, um, yeah, I, I feel like I'm constantly eating within, you know, the, the times that I, I can within the testing times. Um, but I've never once felt hungry. I've never felt like I've been restricting. Like you said, I had my sister's wedding. I had Easter. I ate Easter eggs. I ate hot cross buns. But I, I now know how to pair them with other foods to be able to kind of make sure that, you know, they don't spike my levels. So um, that's been really nice. It, it feels more free to be able to eat normally but still be able to manage um, the gestational diabetes. I'm getting goosebumps listening to you. That's <laughs> I've learned so, so much. <laughs> amazing. That's just amazing to hear. And I'm sure everybody listening will just be thinking like, oh my gosh, like how, how is that even possible? <laughs> but it is possible. It is possible to be able to eat well, feel good, not be feeling restricted and to be satisfied mm. in what you're having and for your gestational diabetes diet to be appropriate for the whole family. Because as I touched on before, there isn't really a, you know, gestational diabetes diet. It's kind of mm. normal, healthy eating that we'd recommend to essentially everybody um, as per like, you know, healthy eating guidelines. Obviously, we need to be more mindful about carbohydrates and things like that. But, um, you know, you can still eat a really well-balanced diet that includes treats, that includes fun foods and can be appropriate for everybody in your family. So, Please keep that in mind, but that's just amazing to hear that you're feeling yes. so well on this diet, um, which is great. How are you feeling now about going into birth, knowing that you did have such a traumatic experience last time? What's going through your head now? Um, I don't think I've allowed myself to think that far ahead yet, although it is creeping up very quickly. Um, I guess what's different in this pregnancy as well is I'm eating better, I'm moving more, and I actually haven't gained as much weight as I expected. So I think at my last check-in, I've gained about one and a half kilos, which seems to be on track. Everyone's happy with that. Um, Bub is still, according to the ultrasounds, on the bigger side, so around the 95th percentile. But given my experience with Ollie, I'm just taking that with a grain of salt. Um but uh, I spoke to actually my doctor last week and and he reassured me or, or made every attempt to reassure me that, you know, I think with Ollie it was just really bad luck. And because my levels are relatively stable and I'm managing my diabetes a lot better, they're not concerned that I'm going to have the same complications and they're actually thinking that I might even be able to push it out to 39 weeks. Um, wow. So there's no real kind of... Um, concern around that so hoping all continues to go well I do expect that you know my sugars may increase as I get further along and that's to be expected everyone's warned me of that but um, I think I'm definitely better prepared for that um, if that were to happen and open to taking Nova Rapid if I do need to but at this point my, I'm determined if I can to to keep it diet controlled as best I can um, but yeah I think I mean, it's so out of my control that yeah. I feel like I've done everything I can to educate myself and prepare my body and just mentally, you know, do the therapy and process all of what happened with Ollie um, that I'm kind of looking forward to it and I'm hoping that that it all goes well this time around and 
definitely determined to try and breastfeed and do all those things that I can um, to to make this one a more positive um, birthing experience. Wow, you've you've got such an amazing mindset. It would be so easy to just be feeling very anxious and to not be, um, I suppose, thinking positively about all of those things and to be also having like, you know, quite fixated on things like not needing the Nova Rapid and all the rest of it. But it's amazing that you're really open to your options and really learning more about everything. And I encourage everybody to learn as much as you can about the Mm -hmm. birth experience and what your options are and what some of the options are, not just in terms of how you give birth, but around birth. And I'm I'm going to get people on the podcast that can explain that stuff better than me because I'm not the expert in it, but to know all those things. And again, like not to be frightened of things like insulin and needing Nova Rapid, like it's definitely not a failure if you do Mm. end up needing that. And like you said, very normal for blood sugar levels to continue to rise during your pregnancy, especially towards the end of the pregnancy. So everyone, if you're going through that, then you're not alone. And that's quite, that's quite expected. Um, yeah, but I think amazing that you're feeling quite positive about things and hopefully looking forward to it. And I really, really hope that you do have a better experience this time and that Bub's safe, Bub's well, and that things go a little bit more smoothly. Yeah, absolutely. And even just, you know, being able to compare the two hospitals this time around, you know, I can't fault them. They've been so thorough. Um, you know, I expressed my anxiety and and we talked through Ollie's birth um, almost immediately. And so um, they've been able to access my file and kind of look at, you know, what actually could have happened with Ollie. Um, and they've just been, yeah, amazing. I've had more scans. I've, you know, had more support, more appointments, which, you know, you don't often expect going through public. You expect that of private. So I'm I'm really, um, yeah, really fortunate that, that um I did decide to go through this hospital and really happy so far with the care that I've received. That's so fantastic. And we're really lucky in Australia that we do have such an incredible Mm -hmm. healthcare system, aren't we? I mean, I know that in other parts of the world that maybe it's not so easy to get access to really good care, but it's amazing Mm -hmm. that you're having such a good experience with the care system. And like I said, we're so fortunate that we do have an amazing public health system that's so well set up and we've got some amazing keep saying amazing, I need a new word, but amazing <laughs> clinicians that can be yes. really supportive. And I know everyone has a different experience, but I'm thrilled that that's how you're feeling this time mm. around. I've absolutely loved this conversation, but I really want to know from you what you would say to somebody else going through gestational diabetes. Mm. I've been saying this a lot. Like I said, I've, you know, been on the Facebook groups and a lot of women are expressing, you know, stress and anxiety, much like I did um, when I was first diagnosed. And I think the best piece of advice that I've been giving is seek external support. Don't rely on the hospital. Um, Not that, you know, they might not be a good fit for you, but they're so overworked and, you know, they, they just don't have the capacity to to work with you as closely as you probably need. Um, and I, you know, the weekly coaching calls that you and I had and the constant messaging and that all made such a huge difference in how I felt um, in being able to manage this time around. So don't do it alone. Um, ask all the questions because I probably didn't. I didn't ask enough questions. Um, don't go into Google. I, I think that's <laughs> probably the one thing. Don't cut your carbs. Um but yeah, absolutely. If you can, if you've got the finances to be able to seek external support, absolutely be doing that. Or jump on Instagram, listen to podcasts, 
um, I think, yeah, if I'd done more research in my previous pregnancy, I think maybe things could have been different, maybe not. But um, I think this time around is so different because I've been seeking out that that research, that education, um, and that external support. So there's so many resources out there. Um, you just need to, to to look for it, and yeah, if you can seek in, you know, other supports where you can. That's so well said and so lovely of you. Thank you so much. That's so complimentary, I think, as well of me. And I promise everybody I didn't pay Elise to come on or ask her to spruik my services. I'm recommending anyway. everyone though but- to see you. <laughs> That's so lovely to hear. And I'm I'm so thrilled that that has been your experience, like I said, and absolutely great advice. Seek support. Don't cut your carbs. And if you can't seek support, then find all of the education and the resources that you can. Please check they're credible. Don't just be jumping on Google Mm. and listening to, you know, random people's advice. And I love those support groups that are out there, but please take what people say with a grain of salt because they are usually not qualified and they're just going off anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. and advice, which is not always um, the right thing for you. Everybody's very different with different needs. So make sure you are, if you can, seeking out that individual support. And of course, my coaching program is available and I'll I'll chat more about that when we jump off. But thank you so much, Elise, for coming on the podcast. You've been such a pleasure to speak to and you've been so vulnerable, so open. And I know that everybody will be Yeah, so appreciative of you sharing everything that you did because it just is so beneficial, I think, to hear all sorts of experiences, positive and negative. Mm. We've got to hear it all to know what you could potentially be in for and to take some of that fear away and take away some of the anxiety that you might be experiencing around birth. So I can't thank you enough for sharing everything that you did. You've been amazing. Thank you so much. I think um, having listened to some of the previous women's stories, it, it was so helpful um, just to kind of feel less alone in in what I went through, especially, you know, those women who had babies through COVID. It, yeah. it was, yeah, it was something that no one could ever prepare for. So um, I really appreciate the opportunity. And I really, again, thank you for, for all the support that you've given. And I'll definitely continue checking in and especially postpartum, I'll be <laughs> hitting you up to, um, <laughs> to seek that support to make sure that sure. I'm you know, recovering and, and feeling as healthy as I can. That is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already, please make sure that you subscribe or hit the plus button so that you can get new episodes delivered straight to your podcast app every week. And if you did find this episode useful, I would appreciate it so, so much if you could leave a rating and review or share it with a friend. It helps me reach more people so that I can help them take some of the stress out of gestational diabetes too. And if you want to keep learning about all things gestational diabetes, head to my website to find all the ways that I can support you. Thanks so much. Chat soon. Bye.